You're listening to Three Makes Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Hello, today I am here with Beth. And Beth reached out to me to share her story on the podcast. And I'm so glad you did, Beth, because you have such a fascinating and unique perspective that I know will help many people as they listen to what you have to say. Beth and her wife have a daughter together who is now four years old. She is was conceived using a sperm donor and they went through a bank. So Beth, it is so great to have you here today on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I love to hear your perspective about going through the donor conception process as a parent. If you want to start there and kind of tell me a little bit about that process for you. Sure. Yeah. So you know, being married to a woman and and being a queer woman, I I always had a sense that or I always had an understanding that we would need some sort of help to conceive a child. And mm-hmm. uh, from a really young age, I was really drawn to being pregnant myself. Um, my mom actually was, she is such a lover. And she, when we, when my brother and I were younger, she absolutely just uh, had adored being pregnant and nursing and just felt enamored of sort of the miracle of growing a baby inside of her. And and that narrative was really woven into our childhood. It was something she talked about a lot. It was, you know, there was an energy that it, she exuded that we just absorbed quite a bit when we were kids. Um, and I think sort of the impact that that had on me was this feeling and understanding that I always wanted to carry a child myself someday. Um, yeah. So fast forward many decades, and as my wife and I were deciding how we might start a family or um, sort of that we wanted to start a family, she had zero (laughs) interest in carrying a baby or being pregnant. She was Mm -hmm. not connected to that at all. And so there was a nice natural fall um, into the sort of role for me of, of being the person who would carry a child. And so we went forward with that. And our, our first choice, actually, something that we really wanted to do was to connect. We had a good friend in mind who we had over the years kind of joked with, and then it became a more serious conversation around potentially um, getting his help to conceive a child and having him and, and his partner in our child's world and have it all be very transparent and have it be kind of a collaborative situation. Um, and that was something that we were really drawn to. Um, and like collaborative just, in the sense of uh, co-parenting or more collaborative so much, and just, yeah. Yeah, not so much co-parenting as um, him being sort of like a gay uncle and but also the biological father and occasionally yeah. maybe taking the child or just sort of coming at holidays and, and things like that. And that was a vision that we had had at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, unfortunately, it didn't work out. We, had, we went into a lot of conversations together and there's so much to think about and it just didn't work out. So um, for us at that time, we decided to go forward with using sperm donation from a sperm bank. Okay. And did you want it to be semi-open or open from the we bank? We wanted it to be open. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, knowing everything I know now, I think, you know, I may have even, I definitely probably would have made some different decisions going back in time. But at the time, we sort of made the best decision with what we knew then. And um, my wife, she has a half-sister who was put up for adoption before she was born. Okay. And she connected with her when, when she was 17 years old. And and so the ability to reach out and connect with biological family was really important for her. And it was really important for me as well. And, mm-hmm. and even though we couldn't necessarily put our fingers on sort of the why and, and what we now know to be much better practice around just everything being really open and having access to, to people from the get-go, mm-hmm. um, our gut instincts were, uh, I think, just lean, leading us into a direction of wanting to have somebody who is willing to be known and, and not just willing to be known, but really open and, and with the kind of energy or excitement, I mean, as best as you can read this through sperm bank catalogs, um, but being somebody who'd be really open and, 
and welcoming if and when that day came. Mm-hmm. And so as we were, you know, we were, we didn't really spend a lot of time picking out sperm. We both were somewhat turned off by like the commodification of, of bodies and mm-hmm. gamete donation and all of that. So we, you know, we, we knew folks who had really shopped around and who turned it into this sort of big, like it almost felt like online dating as we were observing it and, and, you know, um, like designer baby making and, and that was all not really appealing to us. And so we, we made our decision pretty quickly. We, we saw a picture of the donor and, um, he looked at like a kid picture of him and he looked sort of similar to my wife's brother. And so we just clicked on him for that reason. And then as we were listening to his audio interview, the energy that he gave off was just super welcoming and he himself had been adopted. And later in life he had connected with his birth family and had this wonderful relationship with them. And, and a lot of his, audio interview was really reflecting on what it meant to be somebody who was adopted into a loving family, but also having this desire to connect with biological family. Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, a big part of what he talked about when the interviewer was asking him why he wanted to be a willing to be known donor. And and that really spoke to us. Mm -hmm. So we went with him. Um, Yeah. It makes sense that he would have a good understanding of why it's important to be open to being known by offspring did um so he you chose him and are you able to be in contact with him now or just in the future should you want to be yeah so that's where it gets tricky um okay. that's where we sort of know better now <laughs> we okay. wish we a little bit better but mm-hmm. um so technically no it's the willing to be known at least in this country is is not until 18 at least through the sperm bank so you know our loose plan is to should the time come when our daughter would like to, you know, connect with him or connect with, you know, other offspring potentially mm-hmm. would probably um, genetically test her in that way to kind of enter. I don't know. There's all, <laughs> there's all kinds of privacy issues as well, but I think that's our loose plan is to do everything we can with her um, being the driver of the timing and whether that feels good. You know, she's, she's only four right now and she's painfully shy. And, you know, we talk a lot about, biological fathers and I, you know, I, she knows my whole story and I've shared it with her in in a myriad of different ways. And so I'm constantly saying is, you know, is this somebody that you would want to get to know? Would you like to know who this person is? Would you ever want to connect with, you know, your siblings? And, and at this moment, of course, she's saying no, because she's shy and she doesn't like meeting new people, but we would Mm -hmm. let her sort of be the driver of that and, and um, do whatever we could. But technically we can't legally do that until she's 18. Okay, so explain that a little bit for those that don't understand. You can't legally do that. Tell me why the sperm bank so, is allowing it. Yeah, I mean, the sperm banks are big <laughs> corporate, you know, money-making machines and and don't really have the best interest of the offspring in mind. And so I think for their privacy issues and legality, they've, you know, made it pretty hard to... Uh, to go through them in order to be connected with people. And so um, their policy and and what we signed off on as recipient parents is that when she's 18, if she wants to reach out, that she can connect with the cryobank. And and at that point, they will give the information. And and that's technically what the, um, you know, the sperm donor, her biological father, that's technically sort of what he signed up for as well. But that being said, through none of the sperm banks in our country, at least at that time, and I don't think right now either, um, you know, there is no option to be like known from the get-go. And so we would be taking the chance, if, if it's something that she's interested in, we'd be sort of taking the chance that he may be out there and that he may be open to it. And, you know, when we were listening to his interview, we got, I mean, of course, as best sense as you can, but we got the sense that he would be the kind of person who would be sort of excited to have that connection and maybe even do it earlier or sooner rather than later. So that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. yeah. Do you think he would be open? So you, it's possible that he's open to contact and mm-hmm. you want contact, but you're being prevented from contact because of this original contract that you signed and the sperm bank probably they encouraged you or needed you to sign that in order to move forward. Was it something that was 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to use, you wouldn't be able to go through an American sperm bank without. So, so you have to sign it. So you have to agree to their terms. So they kind of have you held hostage there Mm -hmm. and you now maybe you want to find each other and you're both open to it. And the sperm bank is still saying, no, I don't, can you, do you know why they would still, why wouldn't they give, give him a call and say, are you interested? And if he says, yes, let you guys meet each other. That's a great question. I think, you know, I think that they, their best sort of the interest that they have in mind is really more about um, making a lot of money and not really being held responsible for the emotional aspects of what it might mean to be donor conceived. I think, you know, it, I, again, I don't want to put words into the mouth of, of corporate sperm banks, but um, you know, I, I, my sense of it is just that it would be opening up a can of worms. And I think it's an, a, a can that needs to be opened for sure. Um, and it needs to be done really thoughtfully, but up until now, again, the, the interest of the offspring, whether that's a child or even the grown adult offspring, um, is not really the number one priority of sperm banks. So okay. since there are no real laws established, there's some state laws are just beginning to be established in, in I think California and there's another one I can't think of, but that you're not legally prohibited from finding people that you're related to. Right. You're just, it's just more of a, you're, I mean, it's obviously a contract, so it'd be a breach of contract, which right. they would then have to sue you, I assume in order to uh, to take any action against you. But it's not like you wouldn't be doing anything illegal. And I think yeah. a lot of parents are misunderstand that. They think, well, I, I'd i be breaking the law. But no, it's n- there's no law. That pre- yeah, no, we're, we're not worried about that at all. I yeah. think for okay. us, it's more our daughter's still young and, and we have these conversations regularly at home, but we want her to be the driver of if we were to go forward. And so we're just, yeah. you know, kind of waiting that out since she's a kid who likes the familiar. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and let's say goes. if she said a couple years from now, you know what, I do want to know mm-hmm. more about him, then you would find ways to to see if you could connect and see Absolutely. If yeah, we, yeah. Everything we could. Yeah. And that's kind of another show almost to talk about how you even go about doing that. Mm-hmm. Because there are there are people that can help. And then also you can go through DNA testing, as you know. And so there's various ways that you can go about it. Mm-hmm. So that's a, such a great point you bring up though, um, is that you said it, it's like opening up a can of worms and it should be opened. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. And I, you know, I would also say we also have a model that it's already, be- it's already being done. It's mm-hmm. already being done in the adoption field and mm-hmm. well, being done pretty well. People know how to do this. So it's not, it's not like reinventing the wheel or anything. Right. Um, we have models we can follow and examples and people we can turn to that, that know how to do open relationships amongst, um, relatives and uh, genetic connections and, and know how to, how to navigate that. And it has to be the right people. You know, you have to be comfortable with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, All parties do. And it sounds yeah. like you knew that because your first donor that you wanted to have your first potential donor wasn't as comfortable with the situation and mm-hmm. decided not to go that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 We definitely feel that way. And we that's feel, smart. I mean, I, I guess, you know, my wife and I have a very, very different backgrounds, but we both, she made a comment the other day and I actually wrote this down because I thought it was so beautiful. We were just kind of talking about how sort of more people in your life and knowing more people, whether they are biologically related or not, who sort of love and care about you. Like the, this is what she said, the addition of people who love and care about you is never a subtraction to the relationships you have with anyone else. Oh, I love that. And I just, yes. you know, we're we're actively talking about that right now because it's more on our mind having learned that I was donor conceived, but that was uh, a philosophy that we both felt and definitely went into parenting with that philosophy, even though we didn't state it in that exact way. So mm-hmm. yeah, so we're both on the same page with that. Well, hang on a minute. <laughs> you just revealed that you are donor conceived also. Yes. <laughs> yes, you are. Okay. So tell us about that. Tell me about that. <laughs> uh, so um, when I, let's see, my daughter was about three years old and I did, you know, this is like the story that is becoming everyone's story. So you've heard it before, but I did 23andMe tests. <laughs> um, and, you know, we live in the Bay Area and it was heavily marketed as a health tool and 
sort of an ethnicity understanding of where your people maybe came from. But honestly, I, I didn't even realize, that, and I consider myself a pretty smart person, but I will, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even realize there was a whole thread on 23andMe of kind of connecting with your blood relatives. So I did a 23andMe test about 10 months before I found all of this out. And I didn't find anything interesting out about my health. Um, and I was sort of curious. My dad had done all kinds of uh, family trees and genealogy and was really fascinated to trace our ancestors. And, and I knew my family to be very British Isles, you know, white people. Just most of my people came from either Scotland or England. And so I was just kind of curious if there were any other any other sort of ethnic background tidbits that I wasn't aware of. Mm-hmm. And there were not <laughs> when I got the results back. It was just everything I already knew. And so I actually declared it a little bit of a waste of money and, and mm-hmm. didn't log in for about 10 months. And then my wife took a 23andMe test again, like nine months later or so. And we were uh, driving home from a birthday party with my daughter in the back seat. She fell asleep and my wife I was driving and my wife got the results of her 23andMe test and started reading her results out loud. And I was like, tell me something interesting because mine was so boring and I didn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. And she made a comment about um, having a second cousin or a third cousin that she had never heard of. And I had this sort of aha moment of realizing that I hadn't gone into that section. Mm. And so <laughs> we got home, like half an hour later, got home. And, and actually, my parents come and stay with us in the winter because they live on the East Coast. And so they were visiting us and they were at our house in a different room watching TV while I was doing this. And I logged back into 23andMe and, and I'm sure I clicked through like the various things that tell you your life might possibly change if you enter this section and I didn't bat an eyelash and <sighs> on the other side oh, and I wow. had a list in front of me and and at the top of that list was my father and it wasn't <laughs> the guy in the other room watching football it and was and it said your dad yeah, it says it and, says 23 and me predicts so and so to be your father to be your biological father oh. Goodness. It actually, doesn't even say biological; it just says father. So there's, I have. Some and it was some name you'd never seen before. Absolutely, a name I had never heard of. And then right below that, and, yeah, was a name also a name I had never heard of. And it said, you know, they predict so and so to be your half sister, and she had a different last name than than my father. And then right below that, um, there was just a set of initials, and it said twenty three and Me predicts this person to be your grandson. So actually now I know that Grandson. that's my half-brother, but because he's a little bit younger than me, oh. the algorithm was just reading it wrong. And, gotcha. and Yeah. Um, but it what was, was your half- initial thought? Well, so my initial thought, when I, because I saw that line with the grandson, my initial thought was just, this is not accurate. Like there's been a mistake, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I was 100% sure it just wasn't accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, this is where I, I know there's all these stories swimming around me and I just hadn't tapped into them or noticed them. And so I, I hadn't yet realized that those kinds of mistakes don't get made. I mean, the mm-hmm. interpretation of the grandson, sure, but everything else was not a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is I look just like my dad that raised me. So I, I don't too. actually look like my mom. I look just like my dad. Oh, like my dad's now side that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so and that's really hard to believe. That was really hard for you to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, a lot, I think a lot of people that go through this look back and, you know, you, you referenced Danny Shapiro in one of your past Mm -hmm. episodes. And I think she really speaks to this, but I know a lot of people, um, who feel this way, just looking back and suddenly it's like, oh, this makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. And actually for me, it was just, it didn't make any sense because I had felt so connected to my dad and my dad's side of the family and, and had this story in my head that I looked just like them and that I acted like them. And, um, Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's mind blowing. Yep. So you thought it was a mistake, but did you go right next door in your, the parent where your parents were watching TV and say, Hey, look at no. this funny mistake. No, no, I didn't. So I, my wife was on the other side of the table and she was in the room with me and I said, Hey, take a look at this. And she actually also thought it was a completely a mistake. And she's also a pretty intelligent human who, mm-hmm. you know, should have known better, but we both believed it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so without a second thought, 
I logged out and moved on with my day. Hmm. And then about an hour later, I got an email from my half-sister now. I know she's, you know, my half-sister, my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and the email came from, you know, the name of the person who was on that list. And it was actually, it was an email that she sent through 23andMe. And so I got it through 23andMe and it just said, you know, hello. You know, it had my initials. I didn't even put my actual name in there. I just had my initials. And she said, um, I'm hoping you're doing okay with all of this. Obviously, we're sisters. Um, you know, like, oh. Oh, it's so great to see you on here. I don't want to overwhelm you, but I'd love to get in touch. So I get this email and I show my wife and my parents are still all in the back room and they have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I show my wife and um, I would say that maybe at that point I had like a 2% intrigue and still mm-hmm. 98% sure that the whole thing was not real. And so the story I had in my head was like, okay, so this wasn't right. And now here come the scam emails to confirm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a nu- that 2% kind of nudged its way in a little bit. And I just started letting my brain think in a couple of different directions. And at first I thought, well, maybe somebody cheated, you know, maybe one of my parents cheated. And even some of the configurations that I was saying out loud to my wife didn't even make sense biologically. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, you know, throwing anything out there. Mm -hmm. So, so at that point, my mom walked into the room and I made a few offhand comments and she acted a little bit strange, but not strange enough for me to really have any sort of like alarm bells go off. Um, And my dad came in at some point and um, my mom actually said, why don't you ask your dad about that? She, you know, and now looking back, I realized that she wanted this whole thing to come out. Okay. Um, Yeah. So I made a few comments to my parents and my, my dad answered my questions, which were, things like, you know, did somebody cheat on the other? And he just said, no, nobody cheated. And, and he didn't offer up anything else. And so it was sort of case. Oh, weird. Yeah. And they didn't say that that must be wrong as well. Um, you know, I can't even remember. They, I think my dad was sort of rolling his eyes saying, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, of course I didn't, you know, nobody cheated. So okay. something along those lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so, so that night, and this was all, and I just want to put this in in reference for everyone. This all happened after you had been through your own uh, childbirth yes. and had your girl. And she, at this point, she was about how old? When you she out? was three and a half at that point. Okay. So not too long ago. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he kind of brushed it off and said, oh, you know, that's ridiculous. And at this point, you're, we're, were there more questions in your mind at this point? Honestly, no. Okay, still none. Yeah. Yeah. So That's okay. A lot of people react. This is very normal way yeah. to react. Mm-hmm. So we went to bed that night, and the next morning I dropped my daughter off at preschool, and and when I came back, my parents were at the front door waiting for me, um, and that's when it all came out. So and and the funny thing is, I you know I opened the door, they were standing right there, and my dad said. <sighs> you know, Beth, sit down. And my first thought was who died? I, I was still oh. wasn't even thinking about the night before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they sat me uh. down. And the first thing my dad said was, you know, we've been keeping a secret from you for 41 uh. years. Oh my gosh. I am not your biological father. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is like, I have tears coming to my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's, that must I, have been like so- I, it, I was in complete shock. So I just sat there for a second and I still, again, I'm, I feel like it's hilarious to me looking back how little I connected the dots, given that I feel pretty good at connecting it's dots. So shocking <laughs> information. Life. Yeah. Um, but it's I just, shocking information. Yeah. It, it, and I was in complete shock for a full week before I looked up and even realized how to put two and two together again. Mm-hmm. So um, I just kind of looked up and I looked over at my mom and I said, you know, what's happened? Like somebody do the math for me because it's not coming to me. Yeah. Uh, and he just, you know, started telling the story and my dad did most of the talking and I, I realized later, I, you know, he had really wanted to keep it a secret and, yeah. and that was, you know, he had asked my mom to keep it a secret from, mm-hmm. that's, that's why he agreed to do it. Um, and, and so I think my mom felt like, this is your story to finally tell. Like, I'm so glad it's coming out and I don't want to keep it a secret anymore. So she let him do the talking and, 
And he just, you know, shared that they had tried to get pregnant for many, many, many years Mm -hmm. and couldn't get pregnant. And they were heartbroken. They really wanted to have kids. And um, my mom had heard from her, I think maybe at that point she was, you know, connecting to some fertility doctors or whatnot, but she had heard that there was some kind of, I don't know if she said experimental sperm donation. I think, you know, it was happening in a lot of cities around the country sure. because it was seventies and yeah. um, so it wasn't super open. And she had heard that there was some sperm donation thing happening in, in Boston. Um, and so my dad agreed to do it as long as they kept it a secret. Uh, and so that's what they did. And, and they ended up, you know, heading to Boston and it just took a couple of tries and, they got pregnant with me and you know the whole time they're telling me this story I kept looking over at my mom and saying like is this real is he is he t- like is is this real and she just kept nodding saying mm-hmm, yeah it is mm. um it was so unbelievable to me and I just I kept looking over and and like saying but I look just like you but I look yeah. just like you yeah wow and yeah. what did they pick a donor that looked like your dad? Yeah. So there wasn't really picking of donors back then. That's so, true. That's true. You know, yeah. it, and I, I was really curious about the process, having gone through it myself and just being fascinated by things like this. And mm-hmm. so they didn't know really much of anything. They knew that, you know, they had asked my dad what his blood type was, which I think was pretty common if they could, you know, use the same blood type thinking, well, this will be the only way the kids will find out. Um, and even then that didn't always happen. Um, and then you know, later I actually, uh, you know, I, I ended up meeting and connecting with my biological father. And so I was able to get his perspective on the experience. And so um, it was really just whoever showed up that day to deliver the goods <laughs> was your donor. That's um, Yeah. And a lot of times it was a med student as well. Yes. Yeah. And so this was mm-hmm. the 70s. So it was all, they were all med students at that time mm-hmm. um, as he was. And yeah. So then, you know, and as my parents are telling me the story, I'm sort of curious about my brother who was born four years later. And sure enough, yes, they went back to the same clinic, totally different donor because okay. again, it was just whoever mm-hmm. showed up that day. Mm-hmm. Um, Does your brother so, look different than the family? Um, my brother looks very much like my mom. Okay. So he and I, you know, we have, we don't have a lot of overlapping looks, but we both have similar coloring and everything, but he looks pretty similar to my mom. Okay. I thought I looked like my dad. Do you look like your donor? Not really. I look more like my father than my biological father. Oh, how interesting is that? Yeah. So, you know, and I want to back up to one thing you said too, about that your dad was only willing to do this if, if it was going to be kept a secret. mm -hmm. And there, you know, there's just a lot of shame. Yeah. Um, Still is, but especially back then for men and infertility mm-hmm. and, you know, around their masculinity. So we, we tend to um, point the finger at doctors a lot for keeping the secrets and mm-hmm. promoting secrecy. And they did, they did. However, they were probably in a lot of cases taking their patients lead and some of their, so in some cases, not a lot of cases, in some cases, maybe the patients were saying, we want this to be a secret. And so the doctors yeah. kind of latched onto that and then went with it. In other cases, they told they began telling their um, their patients to keep it a secret. But in yeah, in your dad's case, it's like you wouldn't be here if he couldn't at least keep that information secret or private. You know, um, right? He really wanted privacy, and maybe he wanted secrecy too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can, you know, I do try to teach men and women that they can have privacy and not secrecy. Yeah. It's a hard line to walk. It's not easy, totally, but, totally. but you can do it. So I, oh, I just, the scene, I see it in my head. I see it in my mind. Your parents, your sweet parents sitting, standing at the door, waiting for you to come home. They mm-hmm. obviously talked about it the night before, you know, behind closed doors with each other and just made this decision to tell you and just how hard that must've been for them. And obviously really hard for you. So disorienting for you and that your dad, you know, was the one to to talk and tell you and for them both to be there for you. I mean, it's probably hard to think about for that moment for you because it was so disorienting, but it does seem very loving to me as an outsider looking at this, the way you describe it. Yeah. The way they did it seems very, you know, loving. 
Yes, it, and it was. Um, you know, I will say that for me, the experience probably was very different um, because I had gone through it, I think, than a lot of donor-conceived adults. It can be really traumatizing for a lot of people, and it, and it wasn't traumatizing for me. It doesn't mean I wasn't in shock, and, you know, I have a lot of strong opinions about the way things should be, even though it wasn't hard for me. What I will say is, you know, my it was clear to me from the get-go that it was really hard for my dad to not to let go of the secret, but to admit that he'd been keeping the secret. Um, I, he, he had actually researched, my mom shared with me right there that he had researched flights home thinking I was going to send him home. And, oh. and yeah. And, and, you know, so there was a lot of me recognizing oh. that so much of why the secret had been kept was, I think, a fear of, of how it might change the relationship that we had. And, and we have a really great relationship. And so I think there was just this concern that that might go away. And, and I understand that. I mean, it's, you know, it's not what I would do and it's not what I'm doing with my child, but I understand who my dad is. He's a very different person than I am. And I understand kind of where he was coming from. Uh, and I don't fault him for that, honestly. And yeah. and it was clear to me from the get-go that he was so relieved to get this out. Oh, and so I, wow. you know, in that first week, even though I was in shock, and I again, you know, I want to be really clear because this is not the typical experience. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that hard for me. Um, and I think it wasn't hard for me because I had such a positive experience kind of on the other end of this. And um, so throughout that first week, there was a lot of me wanting to make sure my dad was okay. And, and even me coaching him and my wife coaching him around the kind of language he might use when this all comes out. Um, And, you know, I think there was a fear that he had that, okay, now I've told you, and there's a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of people that I don't want to know. And from the get go, you know, I was saying this and then my wife immediately sort of also agreed and, and backed me up on this. And I, you know, I just said, I live my life like an open book. This is not a secret that is now passed on to me. Like this is a huge part of my story and it's going to be one that is told mm. and I'm not going to keep it a secret from anybody. And it's, and you know, it's not even that I'm not going to keep it a secret. I'm going to share the story because I think it's mm. important. And I think you know, my own wife is not biologically related to our child, and yet she's very much her mom. And, yes. and I want to make sure that we're really modeling for our kid and, and mm-hmm. for, for you, dad, and for lots of people yeah. that, you know, this is, a, this is a perfectly lovely thing that has no shame attached to it. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I think that felt really important to me to help him to understand that. And I think he has, I mean, I, it's interesting. I will say that I think the fear that he had of coming out with it all was more about maybe being judged by people than it really was any sort of fear of me knowing who might be on the other end of it. So my parents have you know, never once been sad for me to reach out to my biological father or my sister they were really excited for me to do that. You know, they, they, they met my sister. We had, they had a cookout at their house and she came up to their house when we were on the East coast and they were excited to meet her. And so mm-hmm. now that we're on the other side of it, they are very supportive and very much, you know, wanting me and, and then my brother in his situation as well to the best that he can mm-hmm. to feel like we can do whatever we need in terms of talking mm-hmm. about it or meeting people or connecting with people and having relationships with people. That's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. And he's doing okay now? Your dad is? Oh, yeah. I think he feels so relieved to have not been carrying around this secret. Yeah. And mm-hmm. to know that it really doesn't change, it doesn't change your relationship with him. No, it doesn't at all. And in fact, you know, I would say one of the things that was really powerful for me, just with my parents collectively and, th- and thinking about who they were when we were young kids, um, and I guess this is more with my mom than with my dad, but, you know, I have, for whatever reason, in my extended social network and, and group of friends, a lot of us started having kids later or got married later. So I have a, a number of friends who've battled infertility straight and queer and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have some friends who went through years and years and years being, you know, having a hard time getting pregnant. And then when they were finally able to get pregnant, just seeing who they were as moms 
after many, many years of infertility and just seeing the joy in their face all the time as parents. And then I kind of look back and think, oh my gosh, that was my mom. Those were my parents. Yeah. And when my brother and I were born, it's no surprise that my yeah. mom was just so elated with pregnancy and nursing and, and just mm-hmm. being a parent. And it was, it, it sort of came full circle and made me realize just how blessed I was mm-hmm. to have had so much love, love. surrounding mm-hmm. me, you know, perhaps even because of the fertility issues she was battling. Yeah. Yeah. You were so loved, so wanted, so very wanted. And that's, it's an important, it's an important thing to have parents that really you know, want you so much and want to be a parent. Yeah. It's a lot to sign up for. So to come into a situation like that is pretty amazing. And yeah. yeah and I, I like that you say you want to model that openness and no shame uh, feeling a, about being donor conceived or being just having a non-biological relationship, you know, to a family member for your child, because, um, if you were ashamed or kept it a secret, then she would internalize that as well. And she would, no matter, you could say all day long the right thing, but if she saw you doing something differently, well, then she's going to obviously do what you right. you do, not what you say. So, um, yeah, so that's so true that that's was important to me to, to do the same thing for my daughter um, being adopted and me being adopted is to both, is to model that yeah. conversation and openness and, and acceptance of it. So, yeah. Yeah. So you have really a happy, a happy outcome. It was a shocking period to find out. And you did meet your, you said your biological father. Mm -hmm. And how did that meaning go? Yeah. So I'll back up a tiny bit and say that, um, that day when I wrote back to my sister, um, that was probably the most, for me, the most important connection to come out of this. Um, Almost immediately, well, not even almost, immediately, there was such a strong connection that I had with her, even in our writing and the the way that we used words and just the way that our personalities were flowing through our emails that we were kind of, you know, sending back and forth all day that first day and in that first week. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, very soon into this process, it became obvious to me that this was somebody who was going to be in my life forever um, and that I needed to meet her very quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, she had gone through all of this the year before um, and had, you know, definitely struggled through it as most people do um, mm-hmm. in a different way than I had. And and I was, you know, really... Um, wanting to understand her story and her perspective and and just very quickly falling in love with her as a sister um and so she was kind of like it's she's a couple months older than me and so it feels a little bit like she was my older sister guiding me through and she was the one that facilitated me you know connecting with our biological father and and she was the one that shared all these pictures that he had shared with her and the story of who he is and who his family is and how we fit into all of that and um, and so I, I, I definitely want to mention that relationship because I, it's so important to me. Um, and so soon after connecting with her, I was able to connect with our biological father and we exchanged a few emails and then chatted on the phone. And um, so I think the first big connection we had was this, we talked for about an hour and a half, maybe, I don't know, four days after I found out. And it was so interesting just to sort of even think about what you talk about with somebody like that. Um, and, and he, his father was a geneticist and he was really intrigued and is really intrigued by nature and nurture and, and, and thinking about having, you know, having used his sperm for people who were needing help conceiving and, you know, his relationship to that I think is, is really beautiful. I mean, I think he, he obviously is not trying to, he has two sons of his own. So those are my half siblings. I haven't met them. Um, he's not trying to replace our fathers in any way, but I think he's, he, he appreciates um, 
nature enough to understand that there is this part of him that's in us and and Mm -hmm. a part of us that is now in his heart and um and so it was a really great conversation and i really loved getting to know him and and understanding his journey of how he ended up deciding to donate and he didn't do it for very long so there's a chance we may be the only two but who knows Um, and yeah, it was just, it was really great getting to know him. And there were a lot of things that felt really familiar. Um, and then lots of things that just feel more cerebral, you know, I, I, I don't look like him. I, there's nobody on the other end that I really look like. And so that, that factor isn't there. Um, but it's just been really nice to have that connection. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, so I, 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 let's see, I found out in January of 2019, um, it became clear to me that I needed to meet these people in person because it just, it felt so uh, in my mind and it needed to feel a little bit more real. And so uh, a handful of months later, I think it was maybe the beginning of April, I decided to, and they both live in the Boston area. So I decided to fly out and meet them in person. And so, so that's what I did. Um, and I spent together. The week, uh, no, I went no. by myself. Okay. And I, and I wanted to do that first on my own just to, mm-hmm let whatever happened <laughs> happen and mm-hmm. got a nice fancy hotel room. So it'd feel like a retreat away from, you know, everything here. And, mm-hmm. um, and then spent the weekend getting to know my sister for the most part. And, and, um, and we had a lunch and a nice walk with our biological father. And again, she was sort of the liaison between that. Um, and that was lovely and it, it, and it will always be lovely and I'll probably see him once a year, or maybe, you know, maybe twice a year, but uh, spending the weekend with her was was so wonderful. It's just magical. And, you know, we just, mm-hmm. there's so many things that we have in common. And then we're also very different, but there's just, there is a connection there that is, it's just, I can't even describe it, but it mm-hmm. was an instant. And it mm-hmm. you know, I always wanted a sister <laughs> and, and in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, you know, um, you know, she really, she really is that person. And so we, that, that's been the most important piece for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's just hard to describe. It's kind of that genetic familiarity is something, mm-hmm. there's something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, plus, plus all of the, all of the camaraderie that comes with having been the subject of a lifelong secret, I think is, you know, there's, there's something that we can, that's true, that we connect on in terms of, of having not known. Yeah, a shared experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it does, I, I have talked to donor conceived individuals who ha- relate to their half siblings who were also donor conceived much better than their, the half siblings that were raised by the, were raised by their donor. Yeah. Um, that experience of being donor conceived is unique. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say that that's probably true for my brother and I, um, you know, we're both pretty highly sensitive humans. Um, mm-hmm. And, our sensitivities run in a totally different direction. And so my brother and I have butted heads a little bit over time and this has actually connected us more, which has been kind of nice to, you know, he, he had some sense of not quite fitting in, in a way that I didn't. Um, And so that's been, it's been nice to connect with him on that. But I will say that my connection now with my sister is just, it's, it's, it's very strong. I mean, we, we text and connect, you know, if not every day, every couple of days and, um, yeah, it is. It's it, in some ways it is stronger than the connection I've had with my brother. Yeah, I think. Oh, and I meant the the donors. Oh, oh, those. Yeah, the donors' kids. Yeah, the donors' kids that they raise. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. That. So, like you. In, in other words, if you were to meet your donors' children, or have you met them yet? No, I haven't met them. So yeah, if you were to meet them, I've, I've heard from donor conceived people that they usually they don't don't relate to them as much because mm-hmm. they don't have that same shared experience of being, of non, not being raised by the parent. That makes sense. Yeah. By the biological parent. Um, so yeah, so that's where, and also donor conceived individuals, a lot of them do find a lot more value or shouldn't say value, but they find they're more interested in the sibling relationships than the donor relationship. Mm-hmm. That's really common too, and I think that has to do with peer our peer relationships. You know, usually mm-hmm. the siblings are more are the same age as us, where uh, the parents are a generation. It's a generational mm-hmm. gap. So, um, 
Yeah. So that's, it makes sense of what you said about how special it was to meet your half sibling. And for you, it's just the two of you right now, Mm -hmm. unless, you know, you find out more over the years as more people take the ancestry test, you might find more, Uh, but it's nice to have that special connection with just one other person right now. It is. Sibling groups can get really big and I've heard that it can be hard because you don't, they don't they hard to relate to that many people. So absolutely. And I think that, you know, that also makes it, it makes the fact that donor offspring can sort of feel like uh, factory made babies. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of the, the problems that exist in this world yeah. of donor conception and, and gamete donation, Mm-hmm. It really be exacerbated when you're staring down the path of 50 half siblings and it sort of feels yeah. like you were an experiment. Yeah. yeah. It's just, there's, we just don't have social narratives for that. Yeah. You know, people don't know how, and there's no way you can manage that many relationships. So you can't be close to that many people. Mm-hmm. And well, knowing what you know about donor conception, what would you like to see changed in the field? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I, will say that I'm not a huge social media user just for my own sensitivities. Um, And so I certainly don't want to be the voice of this because I think there are a lot of amazing donor conceived adults who are doing some wonderful activist work and and their um, opinions are a lot more (laughs) well-informed than mine. Um, But I think in general, the idea of using gamete donation and having any sort of anonymity or any sort of control over when um, you have access to folks who are biologically related to you is just wrong. Um, And so I would love to see it be something that was a completely open situation if people were going to go down that path where, you know, if you were using a, a, if you were hoping to use an egg or sperm from somebody other than your partner or whatnot, um, that there'd be a way of connecting families with donors who want to be part of the children's lives from the get-go. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a little tricky. I'm not sure I trust the government to be the leaders of that, but I, you know, in an ideal, circ- an ideal situation, that would be the way it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, friends I've, who I've had who've been donors themselves, especially women who've donated their eggs, I think that the uh, the medical establishment <laughs> needs to improve the way they are um, caring for and medicating those bodies. And, you know, I have I have some friends who have done egg donation and and feel like they're you know they were over medicated and overstimulated and a lot of really problematic things. Mm. Without yeah. That being highly regulated and so mm-hmm. yeah, I'd love to see the offspring, whether that's the children or in my case and in lots of people's cases, even through adulthood, but the offspring's needs being centered at all mm-hmm. of the conversations around what is best practice. Agree. Agree a hundred percent. And I think your point to the donor's rights is is so um, true that all the, both the parents, the donors and the the children, the adults that come from donor conception, they all have rights and they all should be properly informed and have access to resources and support and information. And there just should be a lot more transparency across the board. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I also think a lot, you know, what you're doing as a fertility counselor, you know, when I think about having gone through it myself and, and in a couple of different scenarios in past relationships, found myself in offices with (laughs) fertility counselors, Mm -hmm be a lot more work around how to um, help recipient parents understand what is going to be best practice for their children Mm -hmm. um, and just sort of identifying where there may be fears or insecurities that need to be worked on and figured out before Mm -hmm. a child. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, you know, for folks who feel scared to be open and transparent or who do want anonymity, I think, um, helping educate those people to understand that that's not going to be best for the child. Is you just made a plug for my book, you know, <laughs> you didn't even need to. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what my book is about is the first whole section, uh, half of the book is about 
um, emotionally preparing and overcoming the five most common fears that I've heard over the past decade from parents about why they don't want to tell their child the truth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then giving you scripts in the latter half of the book to of how to actually talk to your child through over the years mm-hmm. at different ages. So yeah, that's, you're spot on. I mean, that's, it's exactly right. Is that's those fears that get in the way of, of parents being able to address their children's need needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you're right in that the world of adoption is, you know, there are a lot of really wonderful models. I think, you know, we, we know nowadays, or at least hopefully most of us know nowadays, um, that it would never be in the best interest of an adopted child's, you know, experience to not know they were adopted, to not mm-hmm. have an understanding of where they come from. And, you know, that feels like something that most of us understand and agree on, or at mm-hmm. least I think so. I hope so, at least in the circles I'm running in. And so, mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of great modeling that needs to be translated over to donor conception as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that from what I hear is there's education that's needed there too. Parents that have never experienced a non-biological relationship or family life don't understand what the kids are going through and what their needs are. They don't understand the developmental needs and and why genes and genetics play a role into that at all. They, they tend to not want to just to not see that there is a need, if that makes sense. So I've heard people say that, you know, you can't compare the adoption and donor conception. And while there are a lot, a lot of differences, um, if you look at it from the child's perspective solely, um, there's, there's more similarities than differences. And that's just from the child's perspective. It's not, I'm not looking at it from the parent's perspective because I know there's enough differences there, but the child still has that missing genetic um, information that they may need access to, may want access to, or may not, you know, just like there are some adopted children that don't care either, you know, so you just don't know the, the, but the, if you don't know how to handle that, and how to handle those questions and how to validate your kids' needs, should they have that need, then that's where it gets really, really tricky and difficult for families. Yeah, and harmful for children. Harmful for children, yeah. So I agree, and I think there's things we can definitely do to um, educate and encourage practitioners to, um, to do what's best for their patients long-term, not just get them pregnant. I know that right. that's maybe their primary responsibility is to get them pregnant, but then to also educate on the front end about the long-term needs of the family. Definitely. Well, it was such a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. To encourage more transparency in the field and to inform you as the parents-to-be, I have put together a list of 30 questions that you can ask your sperm bank, your egg donation agency, or your fertility clinic and worked in collaboration with an attorney to do this. It is published in the Three Makes Baby workbook as one of the exercises. So you can go in and ask the questions you'd like to ask. You may not get all the answers, but at least you'll know what to ask. And if you do take this list to your agencies or practitioners, let me know how they respond. Let me know the feedback that you get um, as you ask more informed questions. Hopefully we can all make a difference together. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow me for more content, you can find me on Instagram at Jana Rupnow, OPC, and Facebook. And you can also grab a copy of my book, Three Makes Baby, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Target.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it and share it with a friend if you like it.